Okay. Uh, as to voting, you know, I said I will not vote, but I meant in Slovenia, which was there. There is a small so-called radical left. I totally don't trust them and so on. I think they are manipulated by old corrupted ex-communists and so on. I think in Slovenia one should not vote. I was very Although at that uh, night news that you mentioned, I had a great honor of meeting and having quite a nice chat with Nigel Farage, you know. <laughs> Good friend of mine, you know. Okay, let's be serious and let's do the job. Uh. Again, it's usual for me to say, but this time, again, I really mean it that I hope you will not be disappointed. What I will do today, it's literally what the title, I think, promises, towards a materialist theory of subject, subjectivity, which means it's towards. I just want to address in a very naive way this question which is far from far from promising a self-evident answer. What is it to be a materialist today? What types of materialism are we confronting today? So I will just go through a couple of them and try to clarify some things. I think there are vaguely four or five versions of materialism today. First, the so-called reductionist scientific materialism, cognitivism, Darwinism, and so on. Then, the new wave of atheism, which aggressively denounces religion, Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, and so on and so on. My reproach, I will not deal with it here, to this materialism, you know, God is not great and so on, is precisely that it's not materialist enough. If by materialism we mean in a very traditional Marxist way to locate an ideological edifice in its social, political context and ask not only the question abstractly, is it true, is there God or not, but how does an edifice function in its, I'm sorry to use this vulgar term, social context. This question is, apart from this generalized enlightenment idea, you know, uh, like religion confuses people, enables evil, or whatever you want, they don't approach this question. Then we have a third version, whatever remains of so-called discursive materialism, Foucauldian analysis of discursive material practices, Althusserian notion of uh, ideological state apparatuses, where, again, this orientation does precisely what is missing in this uh, aggressive atheism. They question, they observe an ideology in its material practice. But, again, I claim they are not materialist enough. And then we have the last wave to which I am, although they are not idiots. They are very interesting, some of them, but I'm totally opposed to this last orientation, which is the Deleuzean, or if you want to play with it, post-Deleuzean, so-called new materialism. In all its guises, from Graham Harman uh, to, to, to uh, 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 Jane Bennett, and so on and so on. So, let me begin with a simple 
observation. The paradox is that today it is, it's an old point that I often make in my books, it is idealism which emphasizes our bodily finitude and which tries to demonstrate how this very finitude opens up the abyss of a transcendent divine otherness out of reach. You know, when somebody today talks about we are thrown into our finitude, uh, our bodily constraints are irreducible, a positive condition of our spirituality and so on, far from being a, a materialist attitude, this is today almost, I'm tempted to say, an exclusive spiritualist domain. Whoever begins by this, you can be sure that he will turn uh, spiritualist. And again, as I often emphasize, no wonder that the most spiritual of 20th century filmmakers, Andrei Tarkovsky, is simultaneously the one who was most obsessed with the impenetrable, humid inertia on Earth. You know which is the ultimate Tarkovsky's scene of spiritual immersion. Precisely, a hero not looking up towards the sky, but down on the earth with his head in humid water, even mud, and so on, and so on. Uh, while, on the other hand, so today's spiritualists emphasize finitude, uh, our uh, bodily existence as something beyond which we cannot reach, and so on, and so on. While, on the other hand, scientific materialists keep alive the techno-utopian dream about immortality, about getting rid of bodily constraints, and so on, and so on. It's nice that the only people who today speak about immortality, getting rid of the body, turning yourself to a kind of a virtual uh, entity, not being constrained by, by your finite body, are materialists. Along these lines, a French author, uh, Jean-Michel Beignet, draw attention to the fact that today's scientific naturalism seems to reactualize the most radical idealist program of Fichte and Hegel, the idea that reason can make nature totally transparent. Namely, does the biogenetic perspective of producing humans scientifically through biogenetic procedures, does it not change humanity into a self-made entity? And does it not thus realize Fichte's speculative notion of a self-positing I? This orientation stands for the fourth stage in the development of anti-humanism. We have first the old theocentric anti-humanism you know where you find this use of the term humanism today? In, in, with US religious fundamentalists who use the term humanism as synonymous with secular culture and so on. So here anti-humanism means no, beyond the scope of humanity we need a reference to some transcendent authority to God. Then. The other form of anti-humanism is the French theoretical anti-humanism, which accompanied the structuralist revolution of the 1960s. Althusser, Foucault, Lacan, and so on. There we know, we'll not go into it, how anti-humanism worked. Then we have 
the deep ecological anti-humanist reduction of humanity to just one of the animal species on our earth, the species which derailed the balance of life on earth through its hubris and is now facing extinction, the justified revenge of the mother earth. This is another form of anti-humanism. Then we have again the fourth form of anti-humanism, usually they use the term post, like post-human existence. The idea is that through mostly technological advances, we are approaching a new level where literally we will no longer be humans in the sense of what this word means today, but whatever, some kind of uh, uh, collective reason and so on. What, is, what one should first note here is that this is not a new phenomenon, although today different uh, cognitivists or computer scientists or popularizers like Ray Kurzweil, etc., preach about this, that we are approaching the point of singularity. Uh, in the first decades of the Soviet Union, we already had the so-called biocosmism, which enjoyed extraordinary popularity at that time. A strange combination of vulgar materialism and gnostic spirituality. The idea was, and again I quote it in my books, uh, the idea was that with new technological advances it will be possible to refashion directly human nature itself. As Trotsky put it in one of his texts, the next big task of Bolshevik party is to reshape human nature. Like, the idea is that nature did a bad job with humans, we are two imperfect beings and so on, so our message should be goodbye, I'm quoting Trotsky, goodbye homo sapiens. You did your job and so on. <coughs> what is again so interesting here is how extreme technoscientism mixes with uh, <coughs> a certain anti-sexual uh, pseudo-spirituality. Because if you read these Soviet biocosmic speculative philosophers, you can see that one of their at least obsession is sex. And what they focus on is a, a, a post-human collective entity which would no longer, not only no longer, it would need sexuality to reproduce itself, but even more, the whole functioning of us humans as sensual being will change. How? One of the metaphors they use is that the way we use today uh, feelings, uh, sentiments, or being affected by senses, hearing, and so on, that we should become literally like machines. In what sense? For example, you have a certain, I don't know, electric machine, and then you have there a measuring apparatus which shows you when heat grows too strong. But for this, you as a human guy who regulates the machine, you don't have to feel the heat. It's just the measuring apparatus which tells you it's too much. And the idea is that when we humans in the happy post-human future, when we will feel something, it will be at the same level, you know, like pain. It will just be, we will be informed by our senses that 
something is wrong. But we will not no longer feel pain. We will have a distance from our uh, embodiment. And of course, the point of this is then uh, getting rid of sexuality. And this was quite an interesting situation in the 1920s where this technognosticist got together connected with Ivan Pavlov, the great, you know, conditional reflex guys, and so on, uh, proclaiming, it's very interesting to read this, to look at the sexual politics of Soviet Union in the 1920s. The idea was that, this was the minority, and I think Lenin was right to oppose it. The idea was that sex, sexuality is the last field of uh, bourgeois capitalist Counter, ideological counterattack. The idea is now we won political, economic battle here, working class and in power, and which is why? Because they lost political, economic battle, bourgeoisie is now using sexuality. So the idea is not have a progressive sexuality, but the ultimate goal is getting rid of sexuality as an unnecessary detour, a sign of human imperfection. And if you will think that I'm just exaggerating this, look at the one who is, I think, arguably the greatest, for me at least, Russian writer of 20th century, uh, Andrei Platonov. He is really, I think, together with Beckett, Kafka, Platonov. These are the three great ones. In his wonderful short stories from the 20s, uh, sexuality is always presented as kind of a, really as almost in theological sense, fall into corruption and so on. The problem is how to get rid of uh, sexuality. But back to my main line. So the spectacular development of biogenetics with its scientific practices, that's the idea of this fourth form of anti-humanism, is gradually dissolving frontiers between humans and animals on the one side, as well as between humans and machines on the other side. It gives rise to the idea that we are on the threshold of a new form of intelligence, a more than human singularity in which mind will no longer be submitted to bodily constraints, inclusive of sexual reproduction. Out of this prospect, a weird shame emerges. The shame about our biological limitations, our mortality, the ridiculous way we reproduce ourselves. What Ginter Anders called the Promethean shame, ultimately simply the shame that we were born and not uh, manufactured. However, I think that we should not reduce this post-human stance uh, to the paradigmatically modern belief in the possibility of total technological domination over nature. What we are witnessing today is also an imminent reversal of this scientific post-humanism. The slogan of today's post-human sciences is no longer domination, but surprise, contingent non-planned emergence. Jean-Pierre Dupuy, French uh, philosopher theoretician of catastrophes, detected a weird reversal of the traditional Cartesian anthropocentric arrogance which grounded human technology. The reversal 
clearly discernible in today's robotics, genetics, nanotechnology, artificial life practices, and so on. Quote from Dupuy. How are we to explain that science uh, became such a risky activity that, according to some top scientists, it poses today the principal threat to the survival of humanity? Some philosophers reply to this question by saying that Descartes' dream to become master and possessor of nature has turned wrong and that we should urgently return to the mastery of mastery. They understand nothing. They don't see that the technology profiling itself at our horizon through convergence of all disciplines aims precisely at non-mastery. The engineer of tomorrow will not be a sorcerer's apprentice because of his negligence or ignorance, but by choice. He will give himself complex structures or organizations, and he will try to learn what they are able of by way of exploring their functional properties. He will be an explorer and experimenter, at least as much as an executor. The measure of his success will be more the extent to which his own creations will surprise him, more than the conformity of his realization to the list of pre-established tasks. So I think that this is the first wonderful tension in this new, new post-human sciences and so on. You know how what they want is to, to trigger a process with no return. It's not only we have to have perfect, we have to have computers which will, as it were, start to self-regulate themselves and overcome us humans themselves. That's the measure of success. It's a very nice paradox, again, of how the desire for complete mastery turns into the desire to produce something over which we precisely will have no mastery. This is one perspective of materialism today. Now I move to the next one, the so-called new materialism, focused on the notion proposed by Jane Bennett of vibrant matter. What is this vibrant matter? I think that Frederick Jameson was right with his claim that Deleuzeanism is today the predominant form of idealism. As in Deleuze, new materialism relies on the implicit equation matter equals life equals, equals the stream of agential self-awareness. So no wonder new materialism is often characterized as weak pan psychism or terrestrial animism. When new materialists oppose the reduction of matter to passive mixture of mechanic parts, they are of course not asserting the old-fashioned direct teleology. What they assert is the aleatoric dynamics immanent to matter. Emerging properties arise out of unpredictable encounters between multiple kinds of actants, the agency for any particular act is distributed across a variety of kinds of bodies and so on. Agency thereby becomes a social phenomenon, where the limits of sociality are expanded to include all material bodies participating in the relevant assemblage. Say, an ecological public is a group of bodies, some human, mostly not human, that are subjected to harm, defined as a diminished capacity for action. And in an extremely evil line of thought, I try to imagine what who have been to think 
Auschwitz as an assemblage in this new materialist way. Not just the Nazi executioners were involved as its agent, but also Jews, the complex network of trains, gas ovens, the logistic of feeding the prisoners, of separating, distributing clothes, hair, ashes, and so on and so on. The ethical implication of such a stance is that we should recognize our entanglement within larger assemblage. We should become more sensitive to the demands of these publics and the reformulated sense of self-interest, which calls upon us to respond to their plight. Materiality, usually conceived as inert substance, should be rethought as a plethora of things that form an assemblage of human and non-human actors, or actants, to use Bruno Latour's term. Humans are but one force in a potentially unbounded network of forces. Of forces. We thereby move back to the enchanted world. This is the proper term, because I think that the deepest aspiration of this new materialism is precisely to return to enchantment, to re-enchant the world. No wonder Bennett's earlier work was on enchantment of everyday life. She concludes her uh, book, Vibrant Matter, with what she calls, in no way only with irony, her Nicene creed for would-be materialist, a passage worth quoting. I believe in one matter energy, the maker of things seen and unseen. I believe that this pluriverse is traversed by heterogeneities that are continually doing things. I believe it is wrong to deny vitality to non-human bodies, forces, and forms, and that a careful course of anthropomorphization can help reveal this vitality, even though it resists full translation and exceeds my comprehensive grasp. I believe that encounters with lively matter can chasten my fantasies of human mastery, highlight the common materiality of all that is, expose a wider distribution of agency, and reshape the self and its interests." End of quote. So what vibrates in vibrant matter is its immanent life force, or its soul. Soul in the precise Aristotelian sense of the active principle immanent to matter. Vibrant life force, soul, not subjectivity. New materialism thus refuses the radical divide, matter life and life thought. Cells are multiple agents. They are everywhere in different guises. But a basic ambiguity nonetheless persists here. Are these vital qualities of material bodies the result of our human observers, benign anthropomorphism, so that the vitality of matter means that everything is, in a sense, alive? Or are we effectively dealing with the strong ontological claim, asserting a kind of spiritualism without gods, an attempt to restore sacredness to to the world, to the universe. So if, quote from Bennett, a careful course of anthropomorphism can help reveal that vitality, end of quote, 
It is not clear whether the vitality of material bodies is a result of our perception being animistic or of an actual non-subjective or non-human vital power, an ambiguity which I claim is deeply Kantian. The gap here, we should, I think, return to the gap that separates modern science from Aristotelian descriptions of nature. This gap concerns the status of the real as impossible. The common sense realist ontology opposes appearance and reality, the way things merely appear to us and the way they are in themselves, independently and outside of our relating to them. However, are things not already in themselves embedded in an environment related to us? Is not there in itself the ultimate abstraction of our mind, the result of tearing, th tearing things out of their network of relations? <laughs> what science distills as objective reality is becoming more and more an abstract formal structure relying on complex scientific and experimental work. Uh, does, however, this mean that scientific objective reality is just a subjective abstraction? No, since it is here, I think, that one should mobilize the distinction between reality as we experience it and the real. Alexandre Coiré pointed out how the wager of modern physics is to approach the real by means of the impossible. The scientific real articulated in letters and mathematical formulas is impossible, also in the sense that it refers to something which, cannot ever, which we cannot ever encounter in reality, within which we dwell. For example, based on experiments, Newton posited how, how fast, with how much acceleration, an object moves in free fall in absolute vacuum if no obstacles slow down its movement. We, of course, never encounter such a pure situation in our reality, where tiny particles in the air always slow down the free fall of any object, which is why a nail falls down much faster than a feather, while in a vacuum, their veloci the velocity of their fall would have been identical. This is why for modern science, we have to begin with an impossible real to account for the possible. We have to imagine first a pure situation in which stones and feathers fall with the same velocity and only thereafter we can explain the velocity of actual objects falling as, explain this as deviations due to empirical conditions. Or another example, to explain the attenuation of the movement of objects in our ordinary material reality. Physics takes as its starting point the principle of inertia, which postulates that an object, which is not subjected to any external force, moves at a constant velocity. An object will continue moving at its current velocity until some force causes its speed or direction to change. On the surface of the Earth, inertia is, as a rule, masked by the effects of friction and air resistance, which attenuate the speed of moving object, usually to the point of rest. And this observable fact misled classical theorists such as Aristotle into assuming that objects move only as long as force is applied to them. 
Lacan's notion of the real as impossible should be applied here. The principle of inertia, an object not subject to any external force, moves at a constant velocity, refers to an impossible real, something that never happens in reality, but has nonetheless to be postulated to account for what goes on in reality. It is in this sense that I think modern science is more platonic than Aristotelian. Aristotelian approach begins with empirical reality, with what is possible. While modern science explains this reality through the reference to an ideal order which is found nowhere in reality. And here I think new materialism makes the step back into pre-modern Aristotelian naivety. It covers up the gap that defines modernity. It reasserts nature in its purposeful vitality. What, uh, as again, I quote again Bennett, the careful course of anthropomorphization can help reveal that vitality, even though it resists full translation and exceeds my comprehensive grasp, end of quote. Note the uncertainty of this statement. Bennett is not simply filling in the gap. She remains modern enough to register the naivety of her gesture, admitting that the notion of the vitality of nature is beyond our comprehension, that we are admitting that we are moving in an obscure area. If then new materialism can be still considered a variant of materialism, it is, a material, it is materialist in the sense in which Tolkien's Middle Earth is materialist. Namely, my son, Irun, who is an avid reader of Tolkien, drew my attention to this simple fact that the Middle Earth universe is, in a sense, materialist. It is an enchanted world full of magic forces, evil and good spirits, and so on. But strangely, did you notice this without gods? There is no other domain of gods or whatever. There are no transcendent div divine entities in Tolkien's universe. All magic is immanent to matter. All spirituality is spiritual power that is immanent to, that dwells in our terrestrial world. So here is the first choice to be made. I think that I think that this new materialism, for reasons that, of course, I cannot go into them now, is precisely an, an ideological regression in the sense of avoiding to confront the truly traumatic consequences of what is modern science. Then uh, the second aspect of materialism what we, I want to go on now to another image of materialism, which is the idea that it's not just a point of claiming in an abstract way what is materialism, only matter exists or whatever you want, but in a more Marxist, social, critical way, to be a materialist means that every apparently formal model is always mediated by concrete historical content. It expresses a certain historical matrix. Along these lines, Peter Osborne,
criticized my book, uh, Less Than Nothing, uh, claiming that I'm not materialist in this sense, that what I propose as the basic feature of materialism, you know, all that stuff of which begins with uh, Democritus, then less than nothing, that, that basically I just proposed an abstract formula of materialism without historically grounded in a specific experience. Let me quote to you Peter Osborne's critique. Quote, as for the materialist reversal from Marx back to Hegel, that's my claim, that Hegel was more materialist than Marx, that the true materialist reversal is from Marx to Hegel, it actually happens within Marx's own texts, specifically in Capital, where the ontological peculiarity of the value form is shown to enact just such a process. The idea being, of course, that when Marx analyzes uh, the uh, value uh, form in Hegelian categories, he shows how, again, Hegel was not just speculating, but how, as Marx put it, I think, already in, uh, in his Poverty of Philosophy, that commodities themselves speak Hegelian language, behave in a Hegelian way. And again, the idea is one should not, a true materialist critique of Hegel is not just to show who Hegel is an idealist, in reality there is a social process, blah, blah, blah. One has to show self-reflexively how the Hegelian philosophical edifice itself is grounded in a particular his social historical experience of commodities exchange and so on and so on. Because here I continue with the quote from Peter Osborne's critique. However, it is ontologically particular to capital, Hegelian speculative process, that is its materialism. In Zizek's terms, the contingent historical specificity of its necessity. Such dialectical logical necessity cannot be a feature of a general metaphysics without being precisely what it is in Hegel, idealism, because it lacks the capacity for sufficiently determinate, significant, that is practically relevant differentiation. Simply calling it materialism on the basis of its difference from an ancient philosophical logic of the one does not stop it being idealism in a broader sense. So again, even if I try to define materialism, to advocate materialism, I still defined it as an abstract theoretical stance, less than nothing, there is no one, one is always self-undermined, whatever. But this is not enough. To be a materialist, you have, again, to locate your own position and your opponent's position in a concrete, practical, historical process. End of reference to Osborne. Now, what Osborne proposes here is the old thesis of the so-called Hegel Capital School. Helmut Reichert and some others in Germany back in the 60s, some very good scientists in Latin America, in Brazil, or in uh, Japan even. The idea that the Marxist, Marxist rather, logic of commodities provides the contingent historical secret or basis of the Hegelian speculation. However, I think that 
it is not enough to say this. First, there is the fundamental ambiguity of the Marxist reference to Hegel, which begins already in Marx himself and goes on in Lukács, Adorno, and other Marxists. Namely, I ask you a very simple question. <coughs> Sorry. Is the Hegelian dialectical process a mystified idealist expression of the historical process of liberation, or is it the mystified idealist expression of the capitalist self-reproduction? I developed this already in some of my books that this is always that strike me. Those who want to historicize Hegel's logic, they always oscillate between two totally opposite versions. One exemplarily deployed by young Lukacs is to claim Hegel's logic, let's call it naively the basic form of the Hegelian process, subject alienates itself, experiences itself as determined by alienated substance, foreign gods, fate, uh, uh, capital, whatever, and then the process of emancipation where subject reconciles itself with substance. This is for young Lukacs, as he put it, uh, the mystified form of the actual liberation process of the working class. The true reconciliation between subject and substance is the collective working class reappropriating its own alienated product capital. So again, Hegel's dialectical process, mystified expression of actual liberation movement. Then you have partially already in Lukacs, but especially in Adorno, the opposite reading, that Hegel's dialectical process is a speculative expression not of the process of liberation, but quite the opposite of the alienation itself, that the self-reproduction of capital is the real base of Hegelian circular self-reproduction of idea. What is so interesting is that you find the same ambiguity already in Marx himself. In Grundrisse, the famous text about pre-capitalist mode of production, there it's more on Lukács' side. That is to say, this Hegelian process of utter alienation and then reappropriation of the alienated substance is used as a model for historical development. It begins with substantial unity between producers and objective conditions of production in so-called primitive societies. Then you go through radical alienation, which, of course, reaches its highest point in capitalism, where the producer is reduced to pure abstraction of uh, work, work, working class, workers as, as Marx put it, substantlose subjectivität, subjects deprived of all their substance, and then proletarian revolution as the reappropriation of alienated substantial subjects. But then in capital, he is more at the level of Adorno, whose idea is much more that Hegelian speculation is a mystified expression of the very movement of the capital. It's clear, for example, if you read in capital, how Marx conceptualizes the passage from commodity to capital. In ordinary commodity exchange, the universality of value is a passive substantial universality. With capital, as Marx put it, universality of value becomes active agent. And 
is the active agent of reproducing itself. It's absolutely clear that Marx here, we all know that he was in the 50s reading intensely Hegel's logic, that it's the Hegelian passage from substance to subject and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, this would be my first point, that Marx is extremely ambiguous here. Second, Marx is not only historicizing universals, he doesn't only analyze how a universality is always colored by a specific historical context, like the true secret of Hegelian speculation is self-movement of capital. He also develops how there is a specific epoch in which a universality, which is formally valid for all epochs, appears as such. For example, again, in the already mentioned text on pre-capitalist modes of production, Marx describes how the universality of labor only appears, come to exist in capitalist reality. Then, a third point, there is from Marx to Adorno always a set of propositions which are presented as trans-historical universals. For example, when Osborne triumphantly claims, oh, the true Hegelian materialist, sorry, rip, uh, approach is to historicize every statement. Okay, how do we deal with Marxist from 1859, preface to the critique of political economy, where Marx summarizes the guiding principle of my studies, he says. A brief quote. In the social production of their existence, men inevitably enter into definite relations which are independent of their will namely relations of production appropriate to a given stage in the development of their material forces of production, and so on and so on. I'm asking you a simple question. What is the status of these propositions by Marx? Clearly, they are meant as trans-historical, social, ontological universals. Clearly, Marx is not saying this holds only for the most for capitalist society. What Marx would have probably said, the only way to historicize this is to say that, but it's only from the experience of the position of uh, uh, working class in developed capitalism that we can develop this theory. But nonetheless, it remains universal theory. Then let's make another example, another philosopher much beloved by Osborne, Adorno. When Adorno in negative dialectics talks about the priority of the objectives where he asserts the non-identical and so on, such statements are definitely meant as universal ontological principles whose truth is not constrained to specific historical conditions. So again, I claim that even in their most radical historicism, Marx, Lukács and others, they nonetheless claim, make very strong, universally valid, trans-historical statements. They only claim, in the Hegelian vein, although it's more complex, that it's the privilege of certain epoch and within a certain epoch of certain historical experience of certain agent to, to gain access to this universally valid thesis. Then, let me go on with this critique. There is another properly Marxist aspect. Not only the historical mediation of universal philosophical categories, 
not only the embeddedness of universal philosophical categories in concrete contingent historical context, but a different practical status of philosophy itself. As Louis Althusser put it in his short essay, Lenin and Philosophy, philosophy is class struggle in theory. It by definition involves taking sides, practical engagement. The young Lukács said the same thing in a different way when he emphasized that historical materialism is not a worldview, but a practically engaged stance. Of course, this is a great insight to which we should cling, namely that universal validity and practical engagement are not mutually exclusive. It's not that there are different ways to take sides, but the only access to objective truth is if you adopt a position outside the struggle. No, the beautiful, properly dialectical paradox is that precisely only from an engaged position can you see the universal truth. And I think this goes even for a concrete historical experience. For example, my eternal experience, I'm sorry for repeating myself, take anti-Semitic pogroms in Hitler's Germany. I claim that only from the deep identification with Jewish victims can you formulate, let's say, the social truth of anti-Semitism. It's totally wrong to say, okay, Nazis are blinded by their ideology, the Jews, they are too identified by their suffering, so we should step back and from a neutral view see it. No, truth in its very universality has to be partial. But uh, uh, again, back to uh, Osborne's reproach, is this dimension of practical engagement not lost when I define materialism as just formally opposed to the idealist assertion of the one, as the assertion of some abyssal multiplicity against the background of the void? That is to say, when I propose my elementary, let's call it proto-ontology of less than nothing uh, against the background of void and so on and so on, am I nonetheless proposing a contemplative worldview there? Uh, my first counterpoint here would have been a beautiful paradox. Uh, I developed it in a debate with my good friend, uh, Mladen Dolar. Namely, you know, uh, it's a critical point about Marx, you know, about his thesis, uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. Yes, in a deeper sense, I know what Marx meant, it's true, this reproach. But nonetheless, one should ask a totally naive question. Did philosophers before Marx really only interpret the world instead of changing it? Did they all, starting from Plato, not propose a project for radically changing the world? I would say, show me one traditional philosopher who did not try to change the world. Plato, you know his miserable excursion to Syracuse, trying to convince the tyrant, up to Fichte and so on, Kant, project for eternal peace, and so on and so on. Now I come to my paradox. There is probably only one philosopher who explicitly rejected to change the world. He said, I just want to interpret it. It's Hegel, the main source of Marx. 
So it's a beautiful paradox. Where are these stupid philosophers who didn't want to change the world, just interpret it? No, I think that, and I think there is a deep truth in this. Hegel, as we know, was a truly contemplative philosopher, renouncing all project for a future, limiting his thought to paint gray on gray. You know, I will maybe quote it later, maybe I should do it now. You know, uh, when in the, uh, in the preface to his philosophy of right, where Hegel confronts the demands that the world should be made better and so on, here is the famous quote. For such a purpose, philosophy always comes too late. Philosophy as the thought of the world does not appear until reality has completed its formative process and made itself ready. When philosophy paints its gray in gray, one form of life has become old, and by means of gray, it cannot be rejuvenated, but only known. Then, the mega quote, the big hit, the all of Minerva takes its flight only when the shades of night are gathering. Robert Pippin, with whom I disagree, but still appreciate him as a truly authentic great American Hegelian, uh, Robert Pippin, I envied him for this, made a note here to which I think he doesn't respect it enough. A wonderful uh, uh, note, remark, so simple and evident. Usually, Hegel's philosophy of right, you know, the vision of the corporate state there, you know, is taken as Hegel's model. That's how today a rational state should be. But fuck it, should we not apply Hegel himself? His insight. Does this not mean that Hegel also is painting gray on gray, that the shades of night are already gathering on that? Isn't the very fact that Hegel develops his vision of state the sign that it's time it's over? So I think in this sense, again, Hegel is much more surprisingly open to change and so on uh, and so on. So now I will try, being a materialist, to meet Osborne's critique on its own terms and to claim that I do what he demands from me, that I do provide a very specific historical experience on which I ground my ontological insights. Namely, where are we today in this regard? Radical historical self-reflection. A philosophy has to account for its own possibility. That is to say, how it fits its own historical constellation remains a full necessity. I claim that in some sense, even if we have to move further, something was achieved with German idealism, this necessity of self-reflection. You cannot simply develop an ontology. You have to account for how, why exactly at this moment such a philosophy is possible or even uh, necessary. Of all the people, even mi the late Michel Foucault knew it. Probably uh, you know how, apropos his history as sexuali of sexuality, he pointed out how, Michel Foucault, how every thought, even a reflection on the ancient past, like his own analysis of the ancient Greek ethics, care of the self, and so on, is ultimately a very beautiful Foucault's expression, an ontology of the present. 
he is well aware that it's the deadlock of what he, Foucault, sees as this confessional ethics which covers the span from Christianity to psychoanalysis for him, that it's the very deadlock of this ethics which conditions his return to pre-Christian, ancient Greek ethics. However, I claim, today our self-reflection can no longer be the one of direct revolutionary Marxist subjectivity, whose exemplary case is, again, history and class consciousness by Lukács. Our moment, I claim, is a Hegelian one, not the moment of the highest tension when the teleological resolution seems near, but the moment after, when the resolution is accomplished but misses its goal and turns into a nightmare. And I claim this is why also we should return from Marx to Hegel. This is the Hegelian problem. Hegel's basic problem is how to remain faithful to the original goal of resolution, in this case of Enlightenment, French Revolution, how not to turn towards a conservative position, how to learn to discern the resolution, how to keep it alive in the very failure of, its, of the first attempt to actualize it. Hegel, of course, refers here to French Revolution, its attempt to realize freedom and reason, and that in revolutionary terror, which for Hegel, not for me, uh, and Hegel's entire was, it ended in fiasco. But, you know, Hegel's entire effort goes into demonstrating how, through this very failure, a new order emerged in which revolutionary ideas become actuality. So again, Hegel's point is, let's admit the fiasco of the first attempt at a revolution. But his problem is not a conservative one. Oh, we went too far, let's have some organic order. No, his point is precisely how fully to admit, to take into account this fiasco, but nonetheless remain faithful to the original insight. Hegel emphasizes this to the end. French Revolution was the greatest event, and one should say this for Hegel, he even mentions very positively Haiti as the Haiti Revolution, in this context, and so on and so on. I think, frankly, isn't this our situation today? How to actualize the communist pro project after the failure of its first attempt at realization in the 20th century? I think this is why, the same as with Hegel, the, our task today is how to repeat it, how to do it again, how to remain faithful to it, but nonetheless, how not to, how should I call it, uh, wash away the fiasco, how to see the fiasco in its, even up to a certain point, tragic necessity, but nonetheless not to renounce the revolutionary goal. Isn't this our position today? 20th century communism, should be for us what French Revolution was for Hegel. A big attempt, it went wrong. But again, we shouldn't for that reason denounce it. So Hegel would have been totally opposed to this bullshit, at least this you have to admit, of liberal reading of French Revolution, let's have a cake and eat it, which means in historical numbers, let's have 89 without 93. 
you know, let's have the first liberal phase without Jacobin terror. No, Hegel's basic point is uh, 93 is a necessary consequence of, 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 uh, of 89. You cannot have one, we have to go through this horrible point. Uh, so, uh, in what is this view grounded? Uh, every historical situation contains its own unique utopian perspective, an imminent vision of what is wrong with it, an ideal representation of how, with some changes, the situation could be rendered much better. So when the desire for a radical social change emerges, it is thus logical that it first tries to actualize this imminent utopian vision, which is why it has to end in a catastrophe. And it's here, even if it appears very modest, if you allow me a brief political digression, that the true utopianism today are precisely the modest social democratic attempts. For example, I advise you to read the book. I don't have to advise it to you. Everyone is buying it, and I'm saying this with a certain uh, envy. Fuck it. Why are not my books selling as well as Piketty's? You know, I would sell my mother into slavery to be at that level, you know, of uh, uh, capitalism in the 21st century. But I think, and you should read the book, you learn so much historically, and so on. But it's a utopian book at its purest. Why? On account of its very modesty. Piketty realizes this inherent tendency of capitalism towards inequality, and so on, and so on. So that the threat to democracy comes from within capitalist dynamics. Okay, we agree here. Also, I hope you noted, if you read the book, the wonderful, tragic, sad lesson of Piketty's book. He sees the only bright point in, in from, from, from the 30s till the 60s, no? when this tendency towards uh, inequality was controlled, stronger state, welfare state. But he himself says the condition for this turn towards was what? Holocaust, the two world war and crisis, you know. It says what? And I'm tempted to agree with him. The implicit conclusion is that our only hope is a new world war or whatever then. Uh, he, uh, you know, this is also for me the problem of some optimists. There is now a new trend of historical optimists from Matt Ridley to, to I think, was it Richard Dawkins to some others, which claim we are too fascinated by the present crisis are we aware that we live in a perfect world? No, no, no. They have their point. The idea is that if you look objectively at our situation today, first, fuck it, what economic crisis? Let's be serious. When I was a year ago in South Korea and I mentioned universal crisis, they started to laugh at me and they were right. They told me, and you think you are universalist, anti-Eurocentric? They told me, who is in crisis? Latin America is progressing in the last decade, has progressed more than ever. Even sub-Saharan Africa is finally still miserable, but compared to what went on in previous decade, it's moving up. Not to mention the explosive development of uh, capitalism, China, Singapore, all our Asian values, friends, 
and values meaning, of course, to avoid a misunderstanding, nothing racist. It's poetic term that new masters use there to give an authentic flair, you know. Asian values has the same value as when you say the natural servitude of women, you know, or some bullshit like that. What I want to say is that, no, no, that they told me, you only, or even not all of Western Europe, there are countries like Denmark, Norway, which are still Poland, which are doing very well. Part of Western Europe is in crisis. And in the worst Eurocentric way, you talk about a global uh, crisis. No. You are in crisis, only there. Then, uh, then, you know, they bomb you with these statistics. Again, never better and so on. But I think things are a little bit more complex for a series of reasons. First, uh, you know, even when things abstractly appear to be progressing, then it's not as simple as that. Let's take the situation of Jews today. Compared to 100 years before, the situation of Jews is definitely much better, except in some countries, which we should criticize, deplore, at least in Western countries, open anti-Semitism is no longer considered respectful. And you should never forget how 100 years ago, how common and publicly acknowledged uh, anti-Semitism was. I was told by friends that in Princeton University, even 30 years ago, they still had a how do you call it, lists, percentage of Jews allowed to enroll and so on. Jews have their own state, blah, blah, blah. So you can say, you see progress. Let's not lose nursings are better. Yeah, but there is a tiny problem. In between these two days, something happened, no? Holocaust. And the ultimate irony, you cannot abstract Holocaust because there are good reasons to claim that without Holocaust, there would be no state of Israel that it's precisely as a reaction to Holocaust, blah, blah, blah. So this is first problem. Second problem, it's a totally wrong idea beneath this of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of revolt. But revolts, one has really to repeat this again and again. Revolts, revolution, protests, whatever, they don't explode when things are really bad, you know, and people say, oh my God, we cannot survive any longer now. No. The model typical of a revolt is when things get a little bit better and then expectations explode. And then let me take a very problematic political example, but I think it's true. I've spoken to my friends from Egypt. Tahrir Square. Let's be frank, Mubarak was by far, I'm sorry to tell you this, he was a bad guy, corrupt, yeah, yeah, blah, blah. But he was definitely not simply an old style total domination. He even tolerated a small communist opposition, there were debates, and especially a new educated uh, middle class of young people emerged and so on. And as the result of all of this, of their expectations, which were frustrated, you get the revolt. It's the same in China. Yes, they have to fear and they know it. They know it, the Chinese authorities. They have to fear revolt now, when things are developing explosively, not under Maoism. Which is why the lesson is very sad of this. Unfortunately, there will not be a revolt in North Korea. <laughs> you know? it, if something will happen, it will happen in this way, that gradually they will open, thinking they can control it, you know, and then uh, it will not uh, work, and so on, and so on. So let me go back to this. Uh, 
My, ah, yeah, sorry, Piketty. You know why I think he is utopian? Okay, he is in a way right. The 20th century overcoming of capitalism didn't work. But he then generalizes this implicitly. Okay, he accepts it as a good Keynesian or whatever. Capitalism is ultimately the only game in town. All alternatives ended up in fiasco. So we have to keep it. We, he is almost a kind of a social democratic Peter Mandelson, you know, the dark prince of Blair who said, in economy we are all Thatcherites, you know. All we can do is a delivered distribution, more, a little bit more for healthcare, education, blah, blah. So what I'm saying is that uh, he's, I think he's utopian because he simply says the mode of production has to remain the same. Let's just change the distribution. Bye. Nothing very original, radically higher taxes. Now, here problems begin. Here the utopia enters. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm just saying that to do this and nothing else is not possible. That's his utopia. That basically we can have today's capitalism, which basically as a machinery remains the same, just, oh, 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 when you earn your billions, oh, oh, here are my tax, give me 80%. I don't think this is feasible. I think that, imagine a government doing this. First, Piketty is himself aware it has to be done globally. Because if you do it in one country, then, you know, the story, capital moves elsewhere, blah, blah. But my, and this is another aspect of his utopianism. My claim here is that, if you imagine a world organization where the measure proposed by Piketty can effectively be enacted, then the problems are already solved. You know, then already you have a total political reorganization. You have a global power which effectively can control capital. We already won. So I think that in this sense he cheats. The true problem is to create the conditions for his apparently modest measure to be actualized. And this is why, again, I claim I'm not against him. Wonderful. Let's tax them 80%. What I am claiming is that if you were to do this, you would very soon discover that this would lead to further changes and so on and so on. I'm saying that the true utopia, again, and this is what Hegel meant by abstract thinking, that you just... Uh, Imagine one measure, of course, and nothing else changes. Of course, it would be wonderful to have today's capitalism with all its dynamics, just at the level of redistribution, you change it. But this is utopia, I claim. You cannot do it because, again, a change in redistribution would affect that mode of production, capitalist economy itself. I don't know in what way. I'm just saying that... Uh, that uh, sometimes utopia is not anti-pragmatic in the sense of, oh, radical change, and no, let's be modest, do this. Sometimes to be modest in a false way is maybe the greatest utopia, you know, to be a, to be a realist. It's something like a, a ridiculous example, I know, and I'm ashamed to mention it because Piketty is not this, you know. Like some... Uh, Nazi sympathizer who said basically Hitler is right, organic community, blah, blah. Just why doesn't Hitler get rid of this disgusting anti-Semitism, you know? 
There was a strong trend even among Jews. There was a minority of conservative Jews who basically addressed Hitler in this way. It's a very interesting story. Like, we agree with you, national unity, blah, blah, but why do you hate us? We want to be with you, you know. That's utopian thinking. This is where the old Marxist, so much maligned notion of totality comes in. You know, the moment you observe phenomena in totality, it doesn't go. So what I want to say, back to my main line, is that this is the most dangerous trap. When, uh, to... Uh, perspective of change. As I already said, every historical situation has its own immanent utopia in the sense of, for example, when we have today's capitalism with its incredible productivity, it's easy to say, can't we have all this but instead of being appropriated by capital to be appropriated by all the people and so on and so on. But precisely such a simple reversal logic is a dangerous utopia. And here, I don't have time now to go in detail in it, but here I think Marx should be criticized, that his vision of communist is still this imminent negation. We can have all good things of capitalism, you just drop the private property, but all the capitalist dynamics and so on, it states the rhetorical formula here is the one used by Marx in his 1844 economic and philosophical manuscripts, which I think if we play this right-wing game of where are the roots of Stalinism in Marx, I was never a partisan of young Marx. I say I'm afraid of young Marx much more. Young Marx has in his economic philosophical so-called manuscripts a whole series of passages where he uses this simple reversal instead of logic. Let me bring you some quotes which are even rhetorically uh, beautiful. Like, so much does the labor's realization appear as a loss of realization that the worker loses realization to the point of starving to death. So much does the appropriation of the object appear as estrangement that the more objects the worker produces, the less he can possess. You know, all the time this formula, the more the worker produces, the less he has. Of course, this then immediately calls a for a positive reversal. Wouldn't it be normal for the worker that the more he produces, the more he has? And so on and so on. But so that instead of, instead of being the realization of the worker, labor appears as the loss of his realization, which means we should strive for a society where labor is the realization of the worker. Or instead of appearing as what it is, the appropriation of the object through labor, this appropriation appears as the estrangement. Or instead of possessing what he produces, the more the worker produces, the less he possesses. Or, instead of civilizing himself through producing civilized objects, the more civilized his objects are, the more barbarous becomes the worker, and so on and so on. But I think that precisely this reversal doesn't work. This is the most dangerous uh, trap. And I think that the mature Marx was aware of it. Because mature Marx does sometimes look, uh, use this 
reversal formula, but in a much more ambiguous way. For example, in, uh, in Capital, we have the following passage. This inversion, Verkehrung, by which the sensibly concrete counts only as the form of appearance of the abstractly general, and not on the contrary, the abstractly general as property of the concrete, characterizes the expression of value. At the same time, it makes understanding it difficult. If I say Roman law and German law are both laws, that is obvious. But if I say law, the law, das Recht, this abstraction realizes itself in Roman law and in German law, in these concrete laws, laws, the interconnection becomes mystical. This passage from Marx is very interesting because he is not, as you would have expected, in claiming in alienated capitalist society, the abstract universal dominates over the concrete particular object so that concrete particular object only appear as a, only appear as a, only are experienced as the form of appearance of abstract universality, while normally abstract universality should only be a property of really existing particular objects. No, Marx is not, Marx is not a simple uh, uh, nominalist. The thesis of Marx is precisely that both are the two sides of the same pathology. Marx's point is not let's simply realize a society where, you know, abstract is subordinated to concrete and so on and so on. Uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the point of Marx is rather that this concrete experience, objects are, uh, the only thing that exists are particular objects, universal property is just uh, an abstraction, that this is precisely our ideological self-experience and that its truth is this speculative reversal. And to get rid of the speculative reversal, you must also get rid of this simple uh, empiricist approach. And I think that uh, uh, the problem with communism was precisely that in this sense it tried to actualize the inner utopia as if of capitalism uh, of capitalism itself. And we can trace the consequences of this even to later catastrophes, like the great leap forward in the late 1950s, when Chinese communists decided that China should bypass socialism and directly enter communism. The Chinese communists referred to Marx's famous formula of communism, from everyone according to his abilities to everyone according to his needs. They claimed that they already enacted communism, but they gave a particular wonderful, sophisticated, false, of course, reading of this formula. They claim our communes are already communist. Why? Because each works according to his abilities and each one gets what he really needs. And the idea was the the military leader of a commune determines what you really need, like so much food is enough, so you get what you need, and the same leader of the commune knows what you are really able of and prescribes how much you should give, and so on and so on. So uh, 
Uh, what I'm saying is that maybe we should go here to the end and in a Hegelian way drop this Marxist idea of revolution as a universal subject, working class or whoever appropriates the alienated substance. Maybe both sides of this dilemma, alienation in the sense of we are dominated by some uh, reified, a strange absolute uh, like uh, fate, capital movement and so on. But I think both should be dropped. This, of course, we should step out of alienated society where some absolute, again, God, fate, capital is dominating us. But the solution is not simply to turn it around. We, collective humanity, should do it. I think that the true step should be a more something articulated by Lacan and only in Hegel, that uh, you sh we should just realize that not only are we powerless, but that the big other, capital and so on, is also powerless contradictory in itself, so that uh, like the, to step out means not that I will be master, not the capital, but that no one will be a master. It's a decenterment still. We are still decentered, we humanity. But not in the sense that there is another center that capital rules. Okay, so I hope, I didn't lose my thread, I hope so. I hope that now I demonstrated a little bit in what sense, yes, we should be materialists, also in the sense that our vision, even if it's a general ontological vision, should be grounded in a concrete historical experience. But I think that what I and my friends are doing, to put it in vulgar terms, meets precisely this criteria. Again, our problem is how to remain faithful to revolution, to a revolution, after the fiasco of its first attempt. Now, if I can go a little bit more over uh, to the last example, where I would like to demonstrate what materialism is. The Althusserian theory of ideology as the model of uh, this insisting on materiality, you know, of uh, ideological state apparatuses and so on and so on. I think that Althusser misses something there. What? Uh, 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 Althusser uh, uh, opposes, as we all know, two types of ideological apparatuses, uh, ideological state apparatuses and direct, physically violent, oppressive state apparatuses, police, army, and so on, and so on. The problem is how he thinks, how he conceptualizes their interaction. For Althusser, what distinguishes state from other social apparatuses is that quote from Philosophy of the Encounter, from, that everything that operates in it, in the state, and in its name, whether the political apparatus or the ideological apparatus is, is silently buttressed by the existence and presence of the public armed physical force. That is not fully visible or actively employed, that it very often intervenes only intermittently or remains hidden and invisible, all this is simply one further form of its existence and action. One had to make a show of one's force so as not to have to make use of it. It is sufficient to deploy one's military force 
to achieve by intimidation results that would normally have been achieved by sending it into action. We may go further and say that one can also not make a show of one's force so as not to have to make use of it. When threats of brute force or the force of law subject the actors in a given situation to obvious pressure, there is no longer any need to make a show of this force. There may be more to be gained from hiding it. The army tanks that were stationed under the trees of Rambouillet Forest in May 1968, forest near Paris, 68 events, are an example. They played, by virtue of their absence, a decisive role in quelling the 68 riots in Paris. End of quote. The first thing to note here is the radically, radical change of terrain that occurs when we pass from the first to the second level of avoiding the use of direct force. So as you got it, Altisser distinguishes three levels. First level would be the direct use of brute force. The second level is you make a show of force so as not to have to make use of it. Like you just organize in, in a city where revolt is growing, a big parade just pank, tanks, column of tanks and guns through the main avenues and people will be scared, you don't have to use them. Then when people expect, are aware of this threat. It's even more efficient not even to make a show of the force, because you know, precisely everyone talks about it, our arms there, blah, 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 and even if nothing happens, it can work. So again, what we are dealing here is a kind of negation of negation. First, we negate the direct use of force by replacing it with a mere show of force. Say, again, in a tense situation, Authorities decide to parade columns of tanks through popular quarters of the city. Then, this negation is itself negated. There is no show of force with the authorities expecting that this absent, absence will have an even more forceful deterring effect than the open display of force. Uh, this is precisely, incidentally, a nice example of the difference between imaginary and symbolic. The direct display of force is imaginary. It fascinates you, the image of tanks with all their noise. The second was in purely, is purely symbolic presence absence. Uh, but uh, 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 and I think that it is this properly symbolic dimension that nonetheless, although Althusser notices, notices it, he ignores its status. You know what Althusser doesn't see? He is right in saying the threat is enough, even the threat of non-showing it. But what he doesn't see is that it's not only that this virtual, imaginary or symbolic threat can do the work. My thesis is that what he doesn't see is that only such a show does the work. The paradox of authority is that it works only as a threat. Imagine, precisely, let's return to Paris 68. Imagine the authorities effectively sending into the center of Paris tanks to crush 
the barricades in Cartier Latang and so on. I claim it would have probably triggered a much more serious revolution or whatever. You know, Lacan says this when he refers to a wonderful ambiguity, when he says that omnipotence, toute puissance, necessarily reverts into all in potency, toute en puissance. For example, a father, a good father authority, has to remain a virtual threat. If a father beats you, loses his nerves, even if it's physically painful, can be, but usually you lose fear. You know, there is something humiliating, degrading in it. The true authority has to remain virtual, which is why I think, for example, the Chinese were right when they made their crackdown at Tiananmen with hundreds at least of dead into a non-event. It would have been a catastrophe by them to show publicly in the media the tanks crashing, the demonstrators. It had to be in a way spectralized, you know. Nobody knows what happened and so on and so on and so on. So my point being is that you see here Altisser is too much of a vulgar materialist. It's not only that there has to be a physical threat in the background, but the status of this threat is spectral. The moment you, it's not only that it works also as only a threat, it works, <coughs> sorry, it works only as a threat. The moment you actually realize it, it's a very risk. Okay, you may, you may kill them all, but you cannot. Let's say it would be, have been 68, a massacre in Paris. What would this have meant? Probably the whole France would, uh, would stand up and so on. You cannot do it. And so uh, this uh, here, we see how to really account, to be really a materialist. This, I think, is what this simple example shows. To really be a materialist, it's not enough to insist on immediate materiality as the last resort, like, oh, oh, we can talk, debate, but beware, in the last instance, I can use brutal force and, uh, and obliterate you or whatever. No. The real materiality, materialism, should include into materialism also this strange virtual threat, which is not symbolic because it's a threat of violence, but it's a weird, purely virtual threat, which as such has its all effectivity and a threat which functions only as virtual. This same... Uh, uh, limitation of Altisser is shown also on another level. In a similar way, Altisser, when speaking about um, um, ideological state apparatuses, endlessly repeats in a boring way how they are ultimately material apparatuses, you know, like, uh, for example, religion is not just beliefs, teachings, theology, it's the material practice of rituals of this or that, and so on and so on. True, but I think Althusser here again misses something. And here, for me, true materialism 
okay, I, to annoy my friends, I like to call it dialectical materialism. Being well aware what total philosophical nonsense this term designated in 1940s and so on, you know. But at least I'm safe, you know. If I say I'm a dialectical materialist, it means fuck off, nobody will bother me, you know. <laughs> okay, so let's go on. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when Lacan talks about the big other, what he means is not just the ideal symbolic system, but a weird materiality. If by materiality we mean effects outside the sphere of meaning, the certain, a certain materiality which is at work within the ideal order of language as such. And it's not a material materiality in the sense of language exists in works and so on and so on. It's all that Lacan is aiming at with his notion of, uh, with his notion of decentered subject and so on and so on. It's a strange ideal materiality, but it's materiality in a sense of a mechanic nonsensical force at work in a symbolic uh, system. Where can we find this materiality? Ah, now with this I will conclude. Uh, uh, you know, uh, language. Where is Habermas wrong? No, he is a very respectful philosopher, blah, blah, although now he is furious because he is replaced, obviously, by Peter Sloterdijk as the official European Union state philosopher, you know. But... Uh, uh, you know, uh, his idea of immanent normativity of speech, of human speech, the idea to simplify to the utmost is that the moment we... Habermas, I mean, tries to resolve a serious philosophical problem. In our historicist era, you no longer can be directly a Platonist. You cannot any longer refer to some material ideas, blah, blah, blah. So does it mean historicism? No. Habermas's solution is, I simplify to the utmost, but basically not, I claim. Habermas's solution is, okay, all we are sure of is we are always within a certain discursive practice. And let's simply look at normativity inscribed immanently into this practice itself. Habermas is not saying when you speak, you should speak sincerely and truthfully. No, Habermas is saying by the very act of speaking, of participating in a dialogue, you act as if, or you claim to tell the truth to blah, blah, blah. So that it's a kind of a in immanent normativity involved in very intersubjective uh, uh, communication. Here, I think things get problematic. Why? Because although Habermas perceives himself as uh, uh, the great follower of Kant, he obviously didn't do his homework in reading Kant. Only now am I discovering maybe the most, this is also self-criticism, the most interesting Kant, the late Kant of his anthropology, anthropological writings. What Kant does there is precisely, we really find a kind of a Pascalian, Althusserian Kant there. In total contrast to what we officially perceive it as Kantian philosophy, which is, you know, 
this inner sincerity, something counts as moral act only if you really meant it for no profit, for no personal gain and so on, only if you did it for only for the sake of duty. But here we found a much more pragmatic Kant, not pragmatic in the sense of taking into account circumstances, but precisely pragmatic in the sense of how does, how do all this, how does all this normativity involved in symbolic communication work in actual life? And Kant, Kant uh, concludes or presents a great celebration plaidoyer for, for hypocrisy, insincerity, and so on. You know, it's almost elaborated in detail the Pascalian vision. You are a hypocrite, you try to, well, pretend to say the truth, and even if it's insincere, and you think that by, let's say I am a liar, I pretend to you that I'm telling the truth. But Kantian wager is that I think I'm deceiving you, but ultimately I will deceive myself. And uh, I mean, I will starting to believe my own illusion. And then Kant goes here into such wonderful detail when you can lie all against all the big Kantian motto, you know, in under no circumstances you should lie. Here you have a great celebration of lying, of how the only way to do it is to begin by lying. A celebration of faking, of all that stuff. What does Kant know here? Something which was in an incredibly ingenious way, I claim, uh, uh, indicated by my God. If there is a thing for which I would be ready, as I like to say, to sell my mother into slavery, is to be myself the author of that title, the most beautiful of Walter Benjamin's titles, I think, you know, the one on language in general with specific considerations to human language, no? Because, you know, what, what does Benjamin want to say here? Not the new, Benjamin is not Prince Charles who speaks with trees and all that bullshit, you know. He is not saying, apart from human language, we have the language of bees, all the stupid stuff, you know. Turn two steps left and on that bush you find all the honey you want, whatever. He is not saying that. He is not saying there are DNA, animal language, maybe if one is to believe Prince Charles, uh, trees are speaking, or in Slovenia we had a stupid mountain climber who, and he deserved, he died in Pakistan. He was such a new age jerk, when people <laughs> told him, but how can you just climb up mountain? And he said, you know, before I approach a mountain, I always ask the mountain permission. And if only if I get, uh, uh, uh. no, no. The point is that there is only one language human language. But even in this case, we have to distinguish between universal and particular. We have language as such, which has only one species, human language. But what, so what more do we get? Well, precisely, language as such is maybe, I'm not so sure, Habermasian. What makes it human language is all these beneficent lies, cheating, and so on, but which is the very mode of existence of for example, uh, this is, if you want, quite an empirical example of, I think, where is uh, uh, Habermas wrong. When he says that uh, there is a normativity within language to tell the truth, so that whenever you lie, speaking to another, you are involved in what we call pragmatic contradiction. 
A Kantian answer would be, no, let's say I'm evil. Let's say that you are, haha, I hope it's true, let's say that you are dying of cancer. <laughs> and let's say that I see you and I see you are half dead. Of course, I will tell you, oh my God, things are doing better, you look better, and so on. Now, we probably would both have known that this is a lie. But it's wrong to say I'm pragmatically inconsistent, blah, blah, blah. No, precisely as a lie is the only polite thing to do. The message will not be, why are you lying to me? The message would be, you would have felt some kind of sympathy and so on. And no, I didn't yet. Did I already use here in London? I don't think I did. The extreme example of this, how extremely vulgar jokes can work. Don't be afraid. It will not be a sexual joke this time. <laughs> it will be, did I already tell here, I don't think, the example of Srebrenica. Srebrenica, you know, the city where Serbs massacred, blah, blah, the whole city. Uh, uh, Alenka Zupancic, my Lacanian colleague, told me that she met a linguist from Sarajevo who did a detailed research of Srebrenica jokes, which are extremely brutal, but this comes the point. It's not other Bosnians joking about Srebrenica. It's precisely the survivors of Srebrenica. They are telling these jokes. And just to give you one example, the only thing you have to know is that it's about a guy who wants to buy an apartment, a, a house, some land around Srebrenica. But the point is that you should know that in my part of the world, when we were young, we were still cooking at home like real soup and so on. So when you went to the butcher, usually when you serve, I don't know, one pound of beef, he often asked you, with or without bones? The idea is, you know, if you want to make a consomme or what soup, it's supposed to be better with some bones, you know. That's what you want to know, the, you have to know. So, okay, the joke is this one. Uh, a guy from Srebrenica who escaped Serbs, emigrated to Germany, returns with some money and asks his friends there, my God, I want to move back to my home. Uh, what are the prices now of land in Srebrenica? And the answer is, well, it depends. Do you want land with or without bones, you know, of this instance? It's vulgar, but you know what I think? This is the most respectful thing you can do. I've spoken with people, and they told me, this is not just brutally making fun. The message of this is precisely, we are afraid, we are aware the situation is so terrifying and crazy that the only way to deal with it is in this obscene way. If you play this humanitarian, you know, and say, oh, how was it possible a horror like Srebrenica in 20th century, just one hour flights from Paris, you know? Where are we? We are barbarians. We are all from Srebrenica. We should be. This is, they told me, the true obscenity. There is something very respectful in this, you know? Beneath these jokes, it's basically a desperate acknowledging of impotence. It's too horrible to speak with this uh, pathetic victimization to using this rhetoric. The only thing we can do in this is this. It's an obscenity, but it's the only think that one can do with a certain dignity. And this, I think, maybe he would admit it abstractly, but I don't think this would be, you know, like this joke about Srebrenica, this happens at not at the level of language as such, but at the level of human language, no? And this is what, this 
for this, I think there is, I don't see a space, uh, a space in Habermas. You know, for all this obscenity, lying, and so on, not as a simple treating, but in its positive role. And again, Kant was fully aware of it. He talks about jokes, gallantry, and so on. And again, it's a big celebration of faking, like, and with all, of course, the cynicism that comes here, because I developed long ago this thing. I think that nonetheless, it is on another level that Pascal and Althusser should be opposed. Maybe you know the line, but nonetheless, briefly, and then I will finish. You know, Althusser uh, likes to quote that Pascal, you don't believe, then fake it, do as if you believe, and then you will believe. No, I think he got it wrong. I think ritual is rather also, but maybe even more importantly than a way to bring you to believe. It serves a totally different opposite goal, namely, uh, and Hegel knew this. Uh, Hegel knew everything, as we know. Uh, you know, somewhere Hegel says that religious ritual has the function to release you from the pressure of too intense belief. Like, Hegel's problem is you really believe in God. You think about all the time. Well, follow a ritual, and you will no longer have to believe. You will feel free. You know, if instead of intensely, uh, 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 intensely, intensely thinking about God, repeat blindly the prayer, and in your mind you can think about sex, whatever you want. You know, it sets you free. And Hegel's genius, as I developed briefly in my Less Than Nothing book, can be shown also in his theory of marriage, which goes in the same way. Hegel's logic is, to put it very brutally, you are too much in love, it obsesses you all the time. Marry the girl, then you will see. She smells bad, bad stock, stockings, whatever you want, and it will cure you of your love. <laughs> you know, that's uh, this, uh, how to put it, positive aspect of this uh, uh, hypocritical lying and so on and so on. This is what I claim uh, Altisser's theory misses, but Precisely, you see my point, for being too directly materialist. It misses this, what I call, materialist element, which is precisely, back to Benjamin, not just language in general, but concrete human language, the materiality of all the vulgar interests, and so on and so on. It's difficult to be a materialist, but it is here where we should be materialists. I was, these were just some introductory notes. If you want a little bit more of serious stuff, come uh, Saturday afternoon. Unfortunately, since I am a co-organizer co of that event, of course, brutally, I wanted to manipulate it so that at the end, and this was the first uh, timetable, no? At the end, it's uh, Rowan Williams and me, which means me and Rowan Williams, which means me and me with, in the background, Rowan Williams. No. <laughs> but unfortunately, he let us know that, that he has some marriage ceremony in the afternoon, so he will be very here in the morning, no? Uh, 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 but it happens. So what I want to say is that there I want to go into much, with much detail into in what sense even religion can be conceived in a materialist way, especially with the notion of subjectivity, and now I even discovered what is really great in. I will try to rehabilitate against this 
But you are notion which is, I think, too naive of, you know, subjectivist event engagement. No, I think we should rehabilitate the mortal scene of sloth, which can also function as boredom. You know, in either or, uh, Kierkegaard has a wonderful passage where he says boredom is the ultimate scene, is the uh, explanation of entire human history. God was bored, so created the world. Then he was bored just looking at the stupid creation. He wanted someone to talk to. He created Adam. Adam was bored. God created Eve. Then you have the family. Then you have multiple tribes. These tribes were bored. They started to deal with each other, uh, commerce and so on. Then primitive societies made travels, larger states, blah, blah. And we can go on, you know. In medieval times, they got bored. They started to travel to America, blah, blah. Uh, uh, today, we are bored. We want to reach other planets. So the idea is all great things come out of boredom, no? And my point would be that what we find only in Judeo-Christian tradition is this very fine idea that, and here I'm even opposed to my good friend, very partially, I love him, but you, who thinks that boredom, ethical failure, and so on, is a negative mode of positive achievement. But you now is in this constructivist term, no? First we start with good and Evil is just the failure to do good. No, I remain a Hegelian here. I think that in order to have an authentic event, you need boredom, this self-emptying as an intermediate state. And again, in Christianity, I claim, following my Chesterton, that uh, even in Jesus Christ is basically bored at the cross, like, fuck off and so on. That even God gets board and so on. And then I will try to develop this, I'm so sad I wasn't able to do it today, with another absolutely ingenious, only now I discovered it, but it's well-known fragment from Benjamin on the art of translation, you know, where he uses this metaphor of broken vessel. And I think it's, again, absolutely crucial from there to get the true message of Judeo-Christian tradition. It's not simply the vessel was full, then it break. No, uh, like uh, the opening to the vessel occurs in the very act of breaking. Like God's creation itself is in a way breaking the, the vessel and so on. All those paradoxes, I will develop them on Saturday afternoon. After, and I don't know what uh, Rowan Williams, but there will be some good things. I'm proud to see here my good friend Eric Sentner. And when I spoke about this, materiality which is not material materiality but the other spectral materiality where all his books talk about this in a way although we have slight differences but this comes later you know now you are uh, how do you call it compagnon de route you know fellow traveler no and maybe 20 years from now if you win you send me to gulag or vice versa but let's leave this for later you know now so you will have him you will have many interesting things. I really think, and I'm saying this with sincere surprise, because first, when Costas told me to do this, I thought, okay, it will be another bullshit, let's just take some fashionable topics, blah, blah. And then, my God, I was so surprised that maybe it will not be even total bullshit, you know, what we do. <laughs> so please come, it's worth, it's worth coming, you know, because I hope Eric will agree here with me, the task is precisely this one, to put it briefly. 
When you talk about theological-political from a radically left perspective, usually the idea is, yes, in some stupid parts of the world like Latin America, they are too stupid for pure Marxist theory, you should allow them a religion and so on. But I think we have to move beyond this and ask a serious question. Is there, in the very heart of a radical emancipatory project, a proper theological dimension. And how to think this dimension, we have a couple of models. One is the stupid liberal, critical. Yeah, all radical emancipatory projects are basically secularized theology. That's bullshit. Then we have Benjamin version, you know, weak messianism, retroactive, uh, retroactive redemption. I wonder if that's the last answer. I think we should go deeper, more radically, but again, the point for us, materialists, whatever, communists, I think, is to step beyond this cheap, you know, this cheap idea of religion is plan B. You know, you have to mobilize population. They are not secular enough, so fuck it, let's proclaim voice of God or whatever. No, it must have been at a much more serious level. We will try to do it. Thanks very much for your great patience. I hope I exhausted you so that now I can have my moment of, of uh, hypocrisy and to say, you know, I would like so much to debate with you for another hour, but unfortunately we are too tired, you know. So. Are you tired? Sorry? No, are you tired? I'm never tired because like Comrade Stalin says about communists, I'm made of a special matter stuff. I'm not like other people. Okay, to save the Occasion. Let's take one question so that we have now debate in general, but with one. Please, do, do you have some question? Yes. Um, what do you make of Benjamin's uh, critique of historical materialism? You mean which one? From those theses on history? Concerning his philosophy of history. Uh, I wonder, my I love the text. I always refer to it. And I think it's where precisely Benjamin can be wonderfully read together with Freud, compulsion to repeat all the time. My problem is, is this model of revolution as retroactive redemption, you know? I love this idea of retroactivity, blah, blah. But what I'm saying is that, is it really that the only way to imagine a revolution is this total act of redemption, you know? Like kind of a moment where all the past is redeemed and so on. I wonder if this is what I find problematic, not in the sense that it's too teleological, too idealist, but I wonder if this is the only model. Otherwise, of course, I, I immensely admire it. I mean, but it should be really read in detail. You know, it should be read in detail because the references to this weak messianic force, this, that, it's the same problem as, for example, in his critique of violence. It's incredible how, since everyone loves Benjamin, no? But since we live in times where we fetishize, in a bad sense, violence is horror, the problem is what to do with his divine violence. And it's quite comical to read. It's the same problem with Fanon, no? That they desperately try to downplay it as if Benjamin really went, meant with divine violence some purely symbolic gesture, well, no blood is spilled, just some. No, I'm sorry. 
it's absolutely clear for Benjamin's from Benjamin's description that whatever he meant with divine violence, it's really violent blood and so on. It's the same with Franz Fanon, you know, everyone is embarrassed, isn't it too much, and so on and so on. So I think that uh, this is why, again, it's incredible in his politics against me, the one whom I call like Voldemort from Harry Potter, the one whose name should not be mentioned. Some humans call him Simon Critchley, no? Uh, he <laughs> tries to give his reading, and he gives a pure liberal humanist, humanist reading, as if divine violence means you think about it. And when, when it really is no other way, you apply a little bit of violence. No, this is violence as means. Benjamin's big definition is that divine violence is, sorry, means, it's means without goal, without aim. It's not you want a certain goal to achieve when there is no other way, okay, okay, let's do it. No, it's precisely violence which is its own, its own, its own aim. It's something nonetheless much more radical there. And precisely because of this, I claim, it's not totalitarian violence. Totalitarian violence always has a precise goal, and so on. You know, this is where we should demystify violence, even in the Middle East. I am against terrorism, and so on. But you know, it's a little bit critical, I, I mean, uh, ironic, you know, when Israel or other occupiers claim, but we are for peace. I believe them totally, sincerely. But you know what's the problem? The occupier is by definition always for peace, you know. Because you occupy a land, of course you want to have it peacefully, no? So, you know, we, it's, uh, it's so important uh, to be very precise here, how should I put it, you know? What do we mean with all this? For example, this would be a nice point of going into the theological-political. <laughs> what exactly does Benjamin mean with divine violence. Because again, it's absolutely clear that it's not this humanist idea of, oh my God, we have to shoot some people, but let's really take care that, you know. This is pure instrument, instrumental minimalism, like let's kill as little, of course we are, all, but then again, the question remains, no? So in this sense, yes, and uh, maybe you know about it, I will tell you what we are doing, me and my friends, Udi Aloni my Jewish friend, whom I mock all the time. In the most, he's the source of my anti-Semitic jokes. I tell him my Balkan jokes against us. You know that we are now organizing, I think that in 2015 or when, 100th anniversary of Benjamin's, no, it's live death, I even don't know what. Uh, they will organize in Jerusalem a big international Benjamin conference. I know what we will do. One week before, in Ramallah, our own Benjamin conference. And the whole point is not to do it in this cheap political way, speak only about Palestinian resistance, does Benjamin have to... No, this would be too cheap. You treat Palestinians as idiots, you know. No, we will talk precisely about pure theoretical points of Benjamin. Isn't this a nice gesture? And we count also on getting many... Sorry? Central Committee, you write a proposal with your picture from profile in front and the Central Committee will decide if you have a place there, yes. But you will have to come because if Syriza wins, you will have no country. You will ruin the country there, Greece, no? 
Sorry? Yeah, but it's some guy said, and I love him. Somebody told me that on the net there is Happy Acres, a site where somebody proposed a working group to, to reflect on is Slavoj Žižek a US propaganda psy-op? I have come to the conclusion that Žižek is a charlatan posing as a Stalinist to both discredit communists and simultaneously to smuggle fascist ideas, including old-fashioned Aryan supremacism, back into public discourse, and so on and so on. You know, when he claimed I'm paid by CIA, my reaction is not to protest, but to write a public letter to CIA. So you see, I'm doing all the work for you. Here is my bank account. Can I finally... And then to give this money to Syriza or what, you know? Sorry? Well, it is, uh, it is a lie, but fuck it, if somebody were to offer me 10 million, like you know, fuck the lies, I would gladly, I will give 8 million to Syriza and so on, but then nonetheless, the, with 2 millions, you can do something, no, okay, thanks very much and see you in today. Eric, Eric.